0: this cow here looks a little bit worse for wear, it's because our cattle dog we had before, uh, Sonny, his name is Amigo, he would like to chew on its leg. (laughs) So, he truly was a cattle dog. All right. Not like ours. You can see this man has his thoughts not like ours. God's thoughts are not like our thoughts. God's ways are not like our ways. You know, the truth is that we are made in God's image, which... If you just think about it for a moment, it's an amazing thing. Yes, we have fallen because of Adam and Eve's sin. The image of God has been marred within us. But we are made in God's image. We are to be His representatives, His image bearers around the world. Think of that privilege, responsibility. Think how awesome that is. The scary thing, though, is that this, what we'll talk about today, is difficult for us because God has made us in our image and we've returned the favor and we've made Him in our image. And so how we think about God isn't always in line with what Scripture says, but really based on what we think God should be like. And that's a dangerous thing for us. So let's jump on in. The whole idea of not like ours, I want to read a little section for you from this book called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. He writes this, Time, though, is more slippery than merely past and present. So he's writing about the difference in our views of time. Have you been anywhere where they viewed time differently than you? Well, I'll share a little story with you about that. In many Indonesian villages, church starts midday. When I, Randy, was invited to speak at a church, I initially asked what time church started. The term they used for midday was siang, being a conscientious American, I tried to correspond siang with a time on my wristwatch. Language tutors were well accustomed to working with Westerners. I was taught siang means 10.30 a.m., and it ends with sore at about 2.30 p.m. Indonesians are very friendly, so they greet each other by saying good morning or good midday. But they don't play by the rules. I would say good morning, and they would reply no. It's already midday. But, blast it, I would look at my watch and it wasn't even 10 a.m. It took me years to realize that Xiang was connected to the temperature, not the clock. Once the morning had turned hot, it was Xiang. When it cooled down in the afternoon, it was sore. That's complicated enough, but remember, Xiang was the starting time for the church service. How do you start church at Hot. That would make it difficult for everyone to show up at the same time. It sure does. Folks wander in over the course of an hour or so, but church never starts late. The punctual reader is about to have a panic attack. Isn't it rude to show up whenever you like? That's not how Westerners, or that's not how non Westerners, think of the issue. Most cultures start and end events at the correct time. In the West, the correct time is usually connected to a clock. Westerners today view time as discrete, meaning separate units and thus quantifiable. Over time, as we become busier, the correct time to start events is becoming more specific. In the 1970s, church started at 10 or 11 or noon. In the 1990s, church could start at 10.30 or 11. I, Randy, attend a church that begins at 11.15 a.m. In the non-Western world, by contrast, the correct time is often connected to a condition or situation. Some call this an event orientation, in which, as Dwayne Elmer writes, each event is as long or as short as it needs to be. One cannot determine the required time in advance. Time is elastic, dictated only by the natural unfolding of the event. The quality of the relationship is the primary issue, not the quantity of minutes or hours. Relationships trump schedules. So things begin when everyone who needs to be there has arrived. So while in the United States, church begins at 11.15 a.m., or 10.30 for us, whether or not people are in the building, in Indonesia, church begins when people get there. I always thought, wow, some people get here early and some late. They didn't think that way. Arriving just took time. So some base time on weather, the heat of the day. Some base it on when everyone arrives. That's when it's the right time. Some base it on their phones or watches like we do here in America. But God isn't like that at all. Do you remember what Scripture says about time with God? But do not overlook this fact, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Remember that little joke? God, give me a million dollars. Okay, He says, I will, just give me a second. Which in God's terms would be how long? I don't know. Okay. God's thoughts and ways are not like our ways. We saw that in Isaiah 55. We've seen it here. The gospel lesson for today gives us an illustration of that, including using different times when people were hired to work for the landowner. First, we have to look at the context around this passage to understand it well. The verse before our Bible lesson and the last verse of our lesson form an inclusio. So what's happening with that? Let me read just a little bit before our lesson for today. The verse right before it says this, But many who are last, are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And the last verse of our lesson again says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So there's something going on with With that, but that's really also not very clear. What is this all about? It helps if we go a couple verses earlier. So, Jesus is talking about the rich and how difficult it will be for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Remember, he talks about a camel going through the eye of a needle, okay? And that's not referring, even though you may have heard this before, there's not this gate, okay, that talks about uh, this eye of the needle gate where a camel has to bend down. And in order to get through it, that's not what it's talking about. okay? Because if it would be talking about that, then this would not be what Jesus said. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The camel could still bend down and get in. okay? Impossible is a camel going through an eye of a literal needle. That's impossible. Then it goes on and says this, Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you, what then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you, will have follow- you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for My sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What's going on here? What inspires the words that we have in our text, the gospel reading for today? It's the question from Peter. What about for us? Do we ever ask that? What's in it for me? What about for us? You've asked that before, haven't you? What does this mean for me? What's in it for me? I don't want to go through this ordeal if there's not something important or helpful for me. Do you ever ask that question? What's in it for me? You see, the last shall be first and the first shall be last is a way of leveling the playing field. If you look later after our Matthew 21 through 16 text, and Matthew 20, verses 25, I think it is, and following. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. What does she want? A position of authority for her kids, right? She wants status for her kids. I want to know that if I'm giving up something that it's worthwhile, Do we ever make decisions based on that? It's not based on what does God say and looking into what God is doing, but it's based on what's in it for me, what would be most prudent and beneficial. Does that ever guide us? Are our thoughts different than God's thoughts? They are in my life. You know, what's in it for me leads me then to say that you know, sacrifice and hard work are involved in attaining certain positions. So I'm willing to do what it takes. I'm willing to suffer and sacrifice and do what it takes to reach those goals, to attain those things. That's what makes sense in our minds, right? You don't get something for nothing. Have you ever said that? You don't get something for nothing. And so we say, hey, I'm not going gonna, gonna to do what I do, but I need to get a result from what I do. So let me have the parable about the landowner. Hiring people at different times. Jesus goes on to share what the kingdom of heaven is like, especially in the context of this question you know, what's in it for us? The people are hired at different times. Some work part of the day, some work all day long, some work only an hour. Why is this the different levels of work? Why is this a part of the story? Now, as you think about this, I want to ask you a question. What is the point of view that you take as you read the story? When you're reading the story, what do you resonate with? Hard labor. Hard labor. How many of you, when you're reading the story, you read it along with that one who's worked the full part of the day, and so you're pretty resentful at the owner because, hey, things haven't, this isn't right. This isn't fair. This isn't how things work. How many of you? Only one? <laughs> Come on, liars. Okay. Okay. You're all like, "Yeah, this is a horrible parable. Take it out of the scriptures," because we can resonate with that. I have people in our congregation. Whenever they hear the story of the prodigal son, they they side with the older brother and say, "Yeah, that younger brother did what was wrong. I I agree with that older brother." Okay. Spoiler alert: Jesus doesn't agree with the older brother. Another spoiler alert, Jesus doesn't agree with the guy who is resentful at the landowner, just so you know. I usually read the passage looking at it through the eyes of the one who has worked the whole day. What if we looked at it through the eyes, not of the other laborers, not, not of that one, nor of the, any of the other laborers, but looked at it through the eyes of the landowner? What if the, the landowner does not hire people at different times during the day because he needs them to get the harvest done? What if he's hiring them? What if he's going out to get them because they need the work? And so the landowner goes not looking out for himself and his ways, but he's going out because he cares about those who have been idle all day. When I go out to visit people that aren't able to do what they used to be able to do anymore, this loss of ability and purpose is horribly crippling. It impacts their life so negatively that it gets to a point where if God took me today, that'd be great. I do not wish to live any longer if this is what life is. That's not simply life in pain. That's life without purpose. We were made to work. We were made to have a meaningful life. And so when they're just sitting there not doing anything, oh, by the way, for these day laborers, they needed money to live. Okay? They weren't part of somebody else's, um, they weren't like someone else's slaves. They were day laborers. They didn't have a place to sleep at night. They didn't have all those other things. They needed the income. And so this man is hiring them. If we look at it from his perspective, he says, I want to show mercy to these people that haven't been hired And I want to meet their needs. Well, that kind of changes everything, doesn't it? When we, God, I look to you so I can see things from your point of view, like we heard in the anthem today. The landowner sees them, sees their need, and he generously provides. The landowner, picture of God, is generous to some, it seems, the problem is, why not to all in a way that seems appropriate and proportional? In, in this context, Jesus is leveling the playing field. His ways are not like ours. Can you, we repeat those, those words right there? His ways are not, not like, like ours. ours. His ways are about grace and generosity. It is about the landowner, God, and not us, as we learn about in Luke 17. Have you heard these words before? I, I have a feeling you have. Which one of you, having a servant tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he, the servant, comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat? Get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, you can come eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. Have we put God in this huge debt when we, follow me here, have we put God in a huge debt when we simply respond to his over so that we might receive adoption as sons? And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of the son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. This landowner made, he hired these men to come and he gave them purpose and life with this hiring. And then he provided for their needs, for their daily needs. God has taken you and me and through the work of Jesus on the cross, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and has made us part of his family and overwhelmed us with his mercy and gives us each day our daily bread. God did everything for us so that we could be adopted He's given us an awesome inheritance that none of us can really imagine how good it's going to be. And what does that lead to? It should lead to boasting, but not like our regular comparison boasting. You know, if they had all gotten more, wouldn't that first? One, wouldn't the first ones who had worked the whole day, wouldn't they have had a chance to boast in their, I worked all day, they only worked an hour. But instead, Paul says... Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ by which I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. Paul, who was persecuting God's church, Christians, God came. And you know, if if Saul was persecuting us, Saul, Paul, if he was persecuting us, you know what our job would be? Our thought would be eliminate him. Get rid of him. Get rid of the problem. Wouldn't that be what you would do? Okay? You have people in your life that you do that to. Now, you don't eliminate them. Okay? You just eliminate them. Does that not happen? And I spend time with you, so probably shouldn't lie to me about that. Right? Has that happened to you? Do you know what God did? You know how God's ways are not like ours, you know his thoughts are not like ours. When God saw Paul, God saw Saul, and all that he was doing to persecute his body to persecute Christ, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God didn't eliminate God didn't eliminate Adam and Eve. God didn't eliminate, God converted. Brought him into the family. And said, you're now mine. I will give you a new way to think, a new way to act, a new way to be. That's why Paul could say, I used to boast in all these other things. But now, if you look at Second Corinthians 12, now Paul says, I boast in my weaknesses. My insults, my hardships, I delight in those things. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. And then I'm boasting in the right one. By nature, that's not like us. But in Christ, that's exactly us. Amen? Amen.